But now we don't have any value. Hey, it's Jeff Sentence this week. Um, coming to you on the day that the country of Ukraine declared Varg Vikernes its enemy. Uh, that really happened earlier today, the 21st of March, 2022. Ukraine has gone to war on uh, Christian Varg Vikernes, a.k.a. Burzum, uh, a.k.a. that dork from the stupid video where he dresses as Gandalf and talks about how to land yourself a trad wife. Um, I assume it's just jealousy on Zelensky's part, but... Um, like his masculinity and his uh, kung fu and his awesome car and you know just his his mastery of race science um so yeah that's happened today i thought you were fucking around and i looked it up as you were saying it and that did in fact actually happen that's yeah. that's funny as hell <laughs> but this is a, tactically it's a terrible move you can't start a war on two fronts like that's you right. can't fight the the you uh the declining power of russia and the rising power of uh Varg's, uh compound and all his little blonde <laughs> toe-headed children he's, he's pumping out there i'd like to think that the the neo-nazis in places like the azov battalion and and in other uh compounds within uh within ukraine felt threatened by the overwhelming number of skull calipers that varg has uh, it's so precise. He's got them down <laughs> just to a science almost. There's, Not actual science, but you know. They 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 they're like, we're gonna fall behind on the phrenological front unless we take this man down and uh seize the calipers for the people of the Ukraine. Yeah, he's 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 measuring races you have no idea has even <laughs> existed. He's got like micro races or families. He's like, yeah, just off the scale race signs going on are in this you, compound you think all white people are white people dork you don't even have good ass calipers it seems yeah. and, and, oh plus one of those azov battalion guys died and they released a picture of him and um they had, the master race is really not sending their best that's um, right he looked like one of the guys from come town <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, did you hear about the absolute Irish Chad who uh, opened up a GoFundMe to get money to get himself oh, over yeah. to Ukraine to fight? And he uh, has been spending all the money on MDMA and has, and has <laughs> just been posting <laughs> blurry pictures of the Irish countryside. It's a king. I know it's a republic, but Ireland now has a king. <laughs> they... Ireland is has returned to its uh its primitive uh Gaelic state uh of being a, a monarchy on account of yeah. the true king returning. Yeah, that's just like James Joyce. Then there was a little period of a lack of Irish genius. Now uh, Ireland is in <laughs> going next stage modernism. Uh, they skip postmodernism and now into full next stage um but you know who else is a genius and you know two people who are gen geniuses uh karl marx and friedrich nietzsche that's Those that's guys, true you know, smart smart guys there i thought you were gonna say we... us and i was like we're not both <laughs> geniuses <laughs> whoa <laughs> 
I'm a genius? Wow, thank you. Uh, uh, I lured Gareth back to the show with treats. Yeah, like compliments. Like like uh like trying to get a, a horse to uh to do what you want. You have to give him delicious <laughs> succulent apple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, just tend to my intellectual inferiority or, or just any of my many inferiority complexes. <laughs> Height, weight, just any of them. Height? Are you too tall or something? <laughs> See, perfect. I, I need more time in my life. Just Not tall distance. enough? But no. Five, five mine is actually the average of all heights, and pro by average I mean like perfect. It's neither too uh, tall or no too short. There's like any anything above that is actually just excessive, and it seems like you're showing off. Anything below that, you're not technically a human anymore. You're five um, nine, aren't you? Yeah, which is the perfect height. It, it's the average human height, therefore perfect and and. Probably the smartest height as well. One of the to be fair, height. I'm only a little bit taller, like like a, an inch and a half. Yeah, which is just pointless. You've just um, like put calories into something that was completely um, just excessive and just. Whereas it was a wasted like, effort on my part. Yeah, think of what those calories could have done. Make or, me faster. Like, yeah, you could have burned them as fuel to like catch something. Like or, um, uh, a machine higher. that has uh, an animal in it. Yeah, like one of those little hamster wheels. Yeah, or um, those, yeah. Anyway, we were talking about Nietzsche at some point and Karl Marx, so... Um, <laughs> Do you think either one of them collected gold rings? Uh, I think if, if Marx got into collecting, he'd just be making Engels buy him stuff. <laughs> So, I'm uh, trying to think uh, of Marx and Nietzsche. Which one was the Sonic, and which one was the Knuckles? Um, Marx, Sonic, Nietzsche, Knuckles. No, uh, well, Nietzsche's not like either of those guys, really. He's yeah, kind of he's, like a, he's physically just, he was physically weak and sickly his whole life. Exactly. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he's yeah, like he was tail. Weak, sickly, <laughs> kind of a dork. He never had a girlfriend. Yeah, he's tails. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Tails is at least affable. He's, like, nice with it. He's, like, okay with being, like, the beta to Sonic's, like, Sigma male. Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, sorry, he's, like, Sonic's alpha, uh, Knuckles is Sigma. Sorry. And, um, yeah, Tails is just, it's just a nice guy. He's, like, sweet. and But uh, Nietzsche's not like that at all. He's, no, there, there are no um, characters in the Sonic universe who are anything like Nietzsche. Even Robotnik is not like him that much. <laughs> Robotnik's Wagner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, gay and anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, also, okay, so uh, Jonas Seiker um, is a YouTuber. Uh, won't hold that against him. Yeah, normally that would be a big veto. In fact, yeah. I, I picked up this book before someone told me Hey, you know that's the cuck philosophy guy, right? And I goddamn near threw the book out of the window. Mm, yeah, he he's one of the better ones. Uh, which would make him about equivalent to like an average podcaster. Um so yeah, he he's 
yeah, generally not a bad YouTuber. He doesn't get into dumb drama. He's not a pedophile yet. Uh, <laughs> we know of. Um, he's he hasn't come out with any shockingly stupid takes on things. He's um he hasn't he, groomed yeah. anyone or released any footage of him kicking himself in the balls on TV. Mm, yeah. Uh, he's he's actually like some of his videos were kind of good. He did one on um uh, the uh, the body without organs. The other day and that huh. really helped really helped me understand that concept it, it was he did he i understood it a lot better from him in his youtube video than i have through any like book or you know fancy pants uh education or anything so would you say uh, that you understand it no okay good but uh yeah <laughs> i understand it better we're keeping it 100 here yeah, closer to understanding what a body without organs in parentheses BWO is. I understand explained... it enough. Hmm. Like enough. Yeah, I don't I don't think I'm I'm like seventy-five percent towards enough at the moment. He ex he explained it really well using a metaphor of uh, the band suicide and their approach to drum machines. Like not seeing them as a drum machine exactly, but seeing it as a another instrument. It doesn't need to be in that uh arborescent mentality of there being um this is what a drum machine is this is what it does this is a thing like a drum machine but it's not a drum machine it's rather a drum machine can be anything it could be a guitar or it could be a, a synthesizer it could be it could do anything and that's the way suicide used it it was, it was a good video i liked it and i, I have I been this. linked to that video because i've been told about the whole drum machine metaphor but didn't didn't know that was him yeah yeah, yeah no, great. that's that's actually pretty well um that has floated around on like philosophy Facebook and different other like philosophy places. Yeah, that's actually a pretty well regarded um little video. I didn't know that was him. Hmm. Because much like podcasts, I don't watch YouTube. Hmm. That's pretty that's good a, idea. That's a lie. I'm 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 on the spectrum. I watch YouTube every time I eat. <laughs> well, just like just like my son. That's right. That's cool. Yeah, me, me and your son would get along well, I think. Oh, oh yeah. If, if you know anything about them. Um... <laughs> the, the idea of you flying to England to hang out with your son. <laughs> could you? <laughs> I'd get some time to myself this year. Yeah, I could Should talk to him. I could show him all kinds of Dragon Ball shit. Be like, he, he you seen this he guy? Doesn't like he doesn't like Dragon Ball Z. Uh, he will uh, when I'm done. <laughs> oh, yeah i bet uh, he likes uh he likes cryptids and um he he recently got really into making me explain the film alien to him <laughs> <laughs> like it's a bedtime story more or less yeah yeah we, we were hiking in, in like a, in like the beautiful yorkshire dales the other day <laughs> it was it was like gorgeous up there, like really beautiful. It was a place, this huge lake. There's a there's an actual rainforest that we can go to. It's yeah, like you're you're posting rainforest. some of the pictures, and they look fucking yeah. gorgeous. It's it's beautiful up there, and he just wanted me to repeat the story of <laughs> Alien to him over and over again. And when I stopped, I would have to go back and do a, a story of Alien again. <laughs> <That rocks laughs> so much. <laughs> 
Well, at least yeah. he's got good taste. That's a that's that a great film. <laughs> that uh, maybe, maybe do Predator as well, but I don't. I didn't remember Predator quite as well. <laughs> well, they just sort of fight in the jungle for a while. Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot going on in Predator, but it, he really wanted me to repeat Alien. He wanted Alien versus Predator, which I saw when I was like 15. I have virtually no memory of it. He's he's really gone into the Alien Predator extended universe, but can't watch any of them because he's. Also mortally terrified of blood. Which is <laughs> kind of a kind of an impediment to watching the alien films, I feel. What a, what a swag combination of traits. <laughs> yeah. He's it, he reminds me of like a Schopenhauerian uh like will to death. Uh except it's his will towards things full of blood. Yeah. Yeah, he, he loves violence and but is scared of like blood. <laughs> he only he likes loves... it conceptually. Basically, yeah. He likes the idea of violence. I mean, he'd describe. make a really good terrorist. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, one day he can um, redact it a oil refinery. Anyway, we're... sorry, we were talking about Nietzsche and cut philosophy and such. So Yonasenka is uh, cut philosophy on YouTube. This is his first book. It's out on a repeater, which automatically means it's good. Like, they've literally never done a bad book. Um, and, yeah, it, it's kind of come at a kind of a weird time for Nietzsche studies. Because, okay, so, so here's the complete afterlife of Friedrich Nietzsche. So, in his own time, he was not a huge figure in German philosophy. He was big with the right wing, like the kind of, I mean, proto-Nazis, the people whose grandkids would end up being Nazis. He was big with that kind of crowd in his own lifetime. Then he died. His crazy sister took all his uh, stuff, made the bad book Will to Power, gave it to Nazis. He came associated with, with all that. But at the same time, there were people like um, Emma Goldman uh, wrote Nietzsche and Anarchism. There were people, even when he was alive, kind of appropriating his stuff for better ends than Nazism. Um, then later on in the 20th century, uh, people like Walter Kaufman um, kind of rediscovered him and gave us the existentialist Nietzsche. Um, and made him the godfather of existentialism, which you can then argue maybe it was Schopenhauer, maybe it was Kierkegaard, and so on. Then your post-structuralists come along. Uh, they take Nietzsche as well. He's now the godfather of post-structuralism too. Um, so all his ideas about uh, difference uh, that get picked up and power, get picked up on, by Foucault. Um, Deleuze does his uh, Nietzsche, um, what's that book? Nietzsche and something. Well, he he has difference and repetition, which is his huge riff on the eternal recurrence. And then I know um your other thing that you're mentioning mm. that you're I'll find the name of it. You 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 keep going. I'll find the uh yeah. The uh, I think yeah. Deleuze did do one book that was like Nietzsche the something of something. Um, <clears throat> there was one book that oh, was just about. It's just called Neep. Oh, so he has one called Nietzsche and philosophy. That's the one, yeah. Nietzsche and then and another one just called Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like when they do like uh, Jason Bourne instead of the Bourne identity. It's like the 
kind of gritty remake where he's a bit older. And um, okay, so yeah, all the pro structures guy into him, and by, by like the I guess early by like the twenty tens, there was a kind of a move to think. Actually, you know what? This guy is did say some really fucked up shit, and he was actually reactionary. And people um, have gone as far as saying that you should absolutely not read Nietzsche or people like or Heidegger. Um, I forget the guy's name, so I'm not able to kind of call him out here. There's a wrote a book called Dangerous Minds: uh, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the a radical right or something along those lines. Oh, I found and, that book. Yeah, ba- basically saying, you know, these guys really did, you know, walk the walk with radicalism in it. This stuff is dangerous. And if you go down this path, you can end up reactionary, even if you start off with the best intentions. Um, and This doesn't more... sound like a very smart book. I haven't read it. Who knows? But yeah, I... um, what is a smart book, but has that idea is um, uh, Nietzsche, the aristocratic rebel. It's a thousand pages long. It's very well regarded as far as I can, I can, I can see. Uh, and it's it, um, by uh, uh, Domenico Lucerdo. It's translated from Italian uh, not longer, like uh, 2019. It's on Verso Books. Uh, apparently, that's a, a really good treatment of the idea that, yes, Nietzsche himself was a, <coughs> a aristocratic rebel. He did have some really fucked up political ideas. He isn't an apolitical philosopher in the way that, say, Walter Kaufman and people like that would say. He, you know, he's all about existentialism. He's all post, proto-post-structural. He is... He has no real politics. He's beyond that. And um, Lacerdo says, yes, he did have a politics. Um, and it was kind of silly. Uh, I obviously haven't read this book. It's huge. It's £313 on Amazon if anyone wants to buy it for me. You can uh, get it in America Amazon. for only $35. Uh, oh, 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 okay. I'm looking at a hardcover edition. Yeah, there's a £35 one here as well. So I, I could read it if I wanted to. It's very big. Oh, it's um, part of the historical materialism series. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, it's it's apparently very good. And it, it does apparently make the case that Nietzsche himself, his politics were... Um, okay, so there's a... Uh, it's, I forget which of Nietzsche's books it's from. He says at one point... Give me 500 men and I'll give you a new renaissance. Um, he also says that uh, the only like ideal societies are ones with that practice like caste-based slavery and was apparently very um, influenced by the ancient Hindu book, The uh, Laws of Manu, which talks about you know, the caste system in Hinduism with the Brahmins at the top and um, what are called like untouchables at the bottom. And Nietzsche's, according to Lacerdo, again, this is secondhand, so I'm probably doing a bad job of explaining what he says. Nietzsche's ideal society would be that there is a meritocratic, but also very, very powerful elite at the very top, his 500 men who create the Renaissance. 
and everyone else is essentially a slave um, and would have um, that's the main problem with the world as it is nowadays is we've convinced the, the slave caste that's um, through Christianity and then through socialism that they um, are also worthy as worthy of life as the the Brahmins at the top and um, therefore we've got all the terrible things in the modern world because no one knows their place in the world and if the slave caste would just like you know settle down shut up then the the tiny number of people whose lives really matter could um create amazing things and go into space and you know help build great cathedrals etc um i don't know how Again, haven't read it, so I can't attest to how well Lacerdo um, develops that thought, but it, it seems to be um, seems to be well regarded. But Seika, on the other hand, uh, doesn't want to make the case that Nietzsche, the guy, is a lovely person who believes just good and nice things, although he does make a pretty strong case that um, he wasn't a racist, he wasn't an anti-Semite. Uh, he wasn't even particularly sexist. Um, and that you can use Nietzsche the philosopher and Karl Marx together to make a Nietzschean socialism. Um, so I've been talking way too long, so take it take it from here. What so yeah, so, what's a Nietzschean socialism? So on on paper, this book winds up being um it was uncanny for me to read because it reminds me of a huge amount of discussions I've had personally. Um, the the kind of thought that he posits, um, and he mentions in the introduction that he doesn't mean this to propose a particularly new synthesis of these two thinkers because they've been they've actually been put in conversation with each other very very often. Like I was looking at a couple other books. Um, one is called The Jester and the Sages, which is Mark Twain in conversation with Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx. There's another one um, called Not Hegel, Marx. Blunt rotation. Yeah, that, that would be a major-ass <laughs> blunt rotation. Major keys there. Um, Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche, or The Realm of Shadows. Um, that combination also makes a great deal of sense because both Nietzsche and Marx are reacting to Hegel and different ways. Um, but achieving very similar ends, um, but from opposite sides of the spectrum. So this kind of project isn't a particularly new one. In fact, as we mentioned before, um, Deleuze is one of the first um, major 20th century figures to try to very proactively put Marx and Nietzsche together, that like these elaborate on each other in certain specific ways. Um, uh, Jonas's book, feels more like it's trying to react to the current moment where we see obviously thinkers come into vogue, come out of vogue, uh, passing like shades in that kind of way. Like part of my reaction to uh, the book that you mentioned, Dangerous Minds, is because it sort of misunderstands, it misunderstands precisely what the work of philosophy is, which is to as much as possible, at least as I understand it, as much as possible, to strike out the kind of cult of personality that builds up, that you're not trying to reify a person and all of their life and all of their thoughts, but instead seeing that, like, over the span of decades, 
looking at philosophers more like tool makers. Like they make umpteen different kinds of tools that may or may not be useful in certain circumstances. And you aren't necessarily trying to say, I think every single aspect of this person and every single letter that they ever put down on the page is completely genius. It's more like, this is useful here now. Yeah, Deleuze um, talks about that, doesn't he? He's, yeah. Um, was, was he called like constructive reading or something along those lines where he's talking about, you know, if what, if a person has a hundred good ide- bad ideas and one good idea, you can talk about the one good idea. Yeah. hundred bad and, ideas can go, just go away. It's also baked into his notion of things like re-territorialization, where it's like you, you're allowed, because we're talking about concept space. Uh, it, this came up when we were talking about Alan Moore as well. One of the benefits of a conceptual space is that it's not physical. It doesn't have to obey physical laws where things like immutability of matter is just a physical law. You can't destroy matter. It's just, it's there or it's not. You can transform it, but it's it's going to be there. Since this is non-physical, you can literally go, no, that which I don't want or need doesn't exist. And I can can join things together and do all kinds of fun, fancy things. Um, And so Jonas basically just sort of tries to remind us of this, that um, he also does a very, um, a very clever, like literary critical move that um, (laughs) this is the thing that kind of shocked me. I don't expect this kind of uh, this kind of move from from bread tubers or anything like that, or anyone on YouTube for that matter. I'm like, damn, this guy must have taken an actual like graduate level literature class or something on like comparative uh, comparative reading. Because he, he speaks very specifically his project of creating a Nietzschean Marxism, or even just discussing what that would be, is more of reading one thinker through the lens of another. And what he means by that is... Any given thinker will provide you with a set of things that they value, a set of things they don't value, a set of things that they have complex thoughts on, and a set of things that they uh, disparage and disregard. That's just sort of natural to anyone that writes about anything. Um, And if you use basically thinking like, how would Nietzsche value the thoughts within Marx? Or how would Marx value the thoughts within Nietzsche? You wind up finding a really tightly coiled set of resonances that things like the emancipatory project of Marx is in many, many ways, at least commensurate with the same emancipatory project of Nietzsche. Because while we can debate, and there have been debates on whether he meant that everyone can become an Ubermensch or whether it's something that only certain people can do or blah, 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 others, um, it may shock you to know Nietzsche was not the most rigorous of thinkers, given that the, he wrote about being the system breaker and system breaking pretty frequently like that's sort of one thing that gets written out when we get these um post hoc discussions of his life and work that he very much was situated as someone reacting against um hegelian empiricism as it was building up and especially the the sort of conceptual threat that hegel seemed to seem to foreshadow which is that an empirical science-minded approach to philosophy was going to gobble up all the poeticism and all the interpretive space and all the sort of um, space of becoming of the world. And it was just going to catalog everything and turn everything into a giant index. Um, and, and he was terrified of this. And in certain ways, Marx was as well. They actually have very shared um, criticisms of Hegel. But 
Uh, for Marx, the criticism was more that Hegel still is a German idealist and isn't quite material enough. And this is sort mm -hmm. of where Jonas sees uh, the connection between the two of talking about like the low becoming high and the inherent revolutionary power of, say, like, um, uh, specifically things like the working class assuming power and smashing things like aristocratic or um, power that would make one a servant to something else. So while Nietzsche may perhaps have meant that quite literally as like an aristocrat shouldn't be beholden to the people, the notion of breaking the servile relationship also works in the other direction. It also very much can be read as the serfs rebelling against uh, an aristocrat and no longer, like, it just depends on how you frame that power dynamic. Yeah. And I think it's also worth pointing out that although he's been categorized as an anti-socialist and he definitely was anti-egalitarian, uh, Jonas makes um, quite a good argument that Nietzsche really didn't understand Marx. He, he wasn't, um, when he was talking about socialism, he wasn't talking about Marxism. He was talking mostly about uh, the kind of proto-socialists, the kind of religious people, the uh, the, the levelers and diggers in, here in Britain, um, and uh, During as well. And Marx wrote anti-During. Oh, no, it was Engels who wrote anti-During, wasn't it? Not yes, it was Engels. Uh, I'm, yeah, but I'm, I'm sure Marx wasn't, didn't disagree with it. They, they, they didn't like the kind of uh, ascetic, um, back-to-the-land uh, version of what socialism could be. They, um, yeah, they wanted uh, kind of what the, the USSR and even up to modern-day um, uh, fully luxury automated space communism wants. They wanted us to use all the stuff we have to make things better and uh, nicer and more artistic for everyone. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we, have, we have the famous Engels' work, Utopian versus Scientific uh, Socialism, that elaborates on their view of these religious socialists um, who also called themselves utopian socialists, like quite literally plucking notions of New Jerusalem from the Bible and trying to make that on earth, is he has, they have the same criticisms of those people as you might see today of the kinds of people who want to drop out of life to form intentional communities where they all raise chickens together and become blacksmiths and have a polycule and like, uh, like, the Pacific Northwest or something like that. The same kind of sense of this being irreal and like you're opting out of the revolutionary struggle. Like you've decided you're going to make something perfect for yourself. And even without interrogating whether that's perfect, it is <clears throat> inherently like strangulated and neutered revolutionary power. You're not really a threat 
to overthrowing structures of oppression. You're just sort of opting out of them. And this is one of the big unities, again, that, that Jonas sees between Marx and Nietzsche, because, uh, and this is even where the name How to Philosophize with a Hammer and Sickle comes from, is that in Nietzsche's sense, he viewed the role of the philosopher and the role of good thinking to be actively combative. Like, this is this is part of what undermines a lot of strong reads of what were Nietzsche's personal politics. Not what did he write about, but what did he personally feel? Um, because we get lots and lots of instances of him contradicting himself, primarily because he's thinking more in the terms of, like, explosive fireworks. And in the course, sometimes saying some completely wackadoo horseshit. Um, but the main thought was still, he saw this threat uh, within Hegel of systematizing all of the world and wanted more than anything to blow that up and leave world this like violent, violent, almost volcanic sense of, uh, of, of like pure strength and pure will and things like that. And Marx winds up seeing a similar dynamic, except for him, the limiting factor are things like capital, the bourgeoisie, the rentier class, things like that, which ensnare the raw potentiality and raw humanity of the world and instead point it towards only the acquisition of more capital and the acceleration of capital uh, to the point of, um, in most cases, he, he would write about things like uh, like a, an ex a drive towards extinction, that capital serving only itself will accelerate all of these destabilizing elements that shock and awe we're actually running into in the modern world with things like climate change and, you know, mm -hmm. the... Even even the current uh, conflict in Ukraine being that of two massive powers having more or less a coded dispute over the domains of soft power and in certain mechanical senses, um, flow of oil and how oil itself in a very Negaristani kind of turn to all of this uh, correlates in a uh, pre-climate death world to the raw power of the world. Um, and all of this turns into tens of thousands of dead Russians and Ukrainians, most of which have no real agency within this conflict whatsoever. They're just victims of these giant cogs that happen to move in malevolent and anti-human ways. Yeah, and Nietzsche was against that too in, in, his, in his way. He thought the, um, the, world, the industrial uh, commercial world was, um, was uh, unartistic and limiting. It, it was clearly that um, he didn't. He wouldn't consider uh, someone like you know, Elon Musk to be an ubermensch at all. He his um, his idea of his aristocratic rebels were more. Um, it's hard to exactly pin it down what what they, what they would be like, but they were more artists. Uh, people like even Wagner would probably fit his um, idea of what that that ideal ubermensch person could be much better than any uh you know vladimir putin or any virtually anyone well almost anyone who's ever lived yes yeah, um... i mean with with wagner specifically we actually have a tract that he wrote um prior to their falling out because it's a very fawning letter um they're widely assumed in certain spaces to have been lovers at a certain point we know that wagner himself was was largely gay um, at least by uh, current conceptions of what sexuality would be. And Nietzsche, um, there's a giant question mark, but there's a lot of circumstantial stuff that would point to them having potentially been lovers for, for a period. 
um, partly off of the back of Nietzsche writing these intensely longing letters about how much he views Wagner as like the perfect encapsulation of all of his thoughts. And this is where the, the charges of racism against um, Nietzsche start to fall flat. The, um, the barrier for him was Wagner's like impenetrable uh, anti-Semitism, this like iron wall of uh, hatred of the Jewish people and all Jewish culture. Um, that caused Nietzsche to write an entire book called Nietzsche, Nietzsche contra Wagner about how he hates anti-Semites and how um, those kinds of fixations of, of creating um, caste-like structures of humanity based on things like genetic elements um, prohibits you from actually seeing who is worthy of being considered like an aristocratic rebel. Yeah. This, I mean, this is where we get the like, Nietzsche contradicts himself to a point where he's like, he loves thoughts of castes, but he views castes as something that people, people make. They aren't inherent to the world. They're inherent to the strong that create them, which kind of is a self-devouring concept, but. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he, it's, it's not, aristocratic is the wrong word. It's meritocratic. He's like ruthlessly meritocratic. Uh, he, I mean, he's even... Like, you could even take it back to, like, someone he hated, like Plato. Yeah. And look at his, like, world of, like, uh, guardians and philosopher kings as being more closer to what Nietzsche wanted than an aristocracy where, you know, there may have been a great king who seized power, uh, but then he's just going to have a bunch of idiot kids who are going to be inbred, and the whole aristocracy is just going to... Uh, become more and more pathetic and more and more self-serving and you know kind of Habsburg chins and so on it, it you know that he's not an aristocrat in that sense in the sense that there are great bloodlines and anyone who is born in this is automatically great it, it, it winds up creating um th this is part of why it's hard to read him uh through modern lenses because while it would be tempting to say that that's almost like a fascistic idea he Notably writes enough about certain specific topics, such as intense hatred of anti-Semitism as one specific form of a thought that he hates, but also the general form of creating things like racialized classes or, um, or gendered classes or things like that as somehow being clear insights as to the quality of a person that make him very difficult to actually situate in contemporary political language. Like, yeah. there's very little doubt that he would have actively despised basically every fascist movement as being on some level built around girding. So this is sort of like the, the general agreed upon thought of like contemporary Nietzschean studies that he would have hated contemporary fascism. Or I say contemporary fascism is only about 100 years old, which sucks to think about um, <laughs> that uh, he would have hated them primarily because it's a thought process meant to guard functionally the intellectually weak uh, through these racialized notions. That instead of yeah. having to answer to the self-fulfilling fires of all of the world and all of the universe, you go, no one but me matters. So the fact that, say, um, you know, we're losing in the Olympics to all these people, that doesn't actually matter. So we can ignore that. Yeah. Um, he, yeah. he would be like, you're a coward. Yeah, you're, you're not seeing that you are actually an untermensch. You are one of these slave castes that should be 
trampled on by Jesse Jackson at the Olympics. Yeah, and it's like it's 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 a psychopath. This is where um reading him as either an existentialist or as a like proto right wing thinker, neither one really gets how like psychopathically one hundred he is at all times, even when it would undermine a previous thing that he said. Where like a normal person would say two contradictory things and they're like 60-40. He's a hundred on both. Uh that's he very much is like the proto Deleuze in that he's a pure vibe thinker. If you try to take it's the problem of trying to make a system of thought out of someone who vehemently was opposed primarily to systemization. <laughs> and that sort of yeah. that that hits at an element of Marx that, that I find this um uh, very resonant with me. Jonas's read of Marx and the perversion of Marx under contemporary Marxism um, is a major point of, of his book. That's sort of the major connection that he sees of the system that must be broken is the creation of an orthodox Marxism. Um, we actually see this as part of the process of the continuing development of Marxist thought. So obviously, initially of Marxist thought, then you have a revolution of Marxism-Leninism that is rejected by the orthodox Marxists of continental Europe. They think that Lenin is like a dipshit and he's never going to succeed and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you then get um, the addition of Stalinist thought, which I'm not going to pretend it doesn't have its problems, but also it succeeded in creating a bulwark in Russia that all of Western European and uh, American might for like 70 years couldn't topple, which isn't a small feat. This is, again, to, to verify again, that's not to say it wasn't without its problems, but, you know, we're, we're not looking at trying to say the entirety of something is good or bad, just did it, did it do a certain thing? You then uh, have... I, I, I see what you're saying is that you love Stalin, you want to hug and kiss him, and everything absolutely. he did is perfect, yeah. Perfect. 100%, 100%, absolutely. Um, and then likewise, Mao creates an evolution of that, but the um, Stalin specifically had a very tense relationship with Mao because Mao wanted to break from certain firm relations uh, with Stalin in order to generate a specifically, uh, a specifically Chinese approach to communism. We see these similar kinds of breakages where orthodox Maoists view certain things like Ho Chi Minh thought as potentially heretical or certain like African communist movements like through Sankara, Atama Sankara as potentially heretical or Arab socialist movements. As... So we've actually always seen this, that like the role of socialism is to even overthrow itself because to be a living science, you must engage with the people and culture that, that you are in, not that Marx was in in continental Europe. You're supposed to learn from history, but not necessarily say that, like the quote that history repeats itself first isn't to say that um, everything perfectly repeats 100%. Like that, that's sort of a gross misunderstanding of like the tragedy that, that Marx was trying to say that with, and that one of the roles of socialism is to sort of break away from some of these cycles. Which then, coincidentally, brings us back to Nietzsche with things of, like, the eternal recurrence is a massive superstructure that subsumes reality, and there are smaller, much smaller recurrences, but all of that middle space is where uh, sort of the lay world 
plays of these like partial repetitions, these half repetitions, these um, pseudo captures, all that kind of stuff. I want to get into eternal recurrence because I, that's one of the Nietzsche aspects I've always struggled with. I, 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 <clears throat> I can understand it on the like pop Nietzsche level of um, could you say yes to every second of your life? Are you living the best life you could? Like there, there's a pop Nietzsche that yeah. teenage boys can understand. That um, it's very easy with paternal recurrence, but the the way it's the way it can be political, the way like Deleuze can talk about it in difference and repetition and stuff. I, I I still cannot quite get that. But we we should do some music first. Yes, I think. <laughs> then we can talk about eternal recurrence. Uh, so let, let's do a really quick one, so uh, people can hear about eternal recurrence easier. So, uh, Worm Rot, uh, a <laughs> grindcore band from uh, Singapore. Um, they had the album came. <clears throat> um, I forget what it's called now. They had a really great album came out in 2018. Um, it kind of really blew up for them. They got signed to a quite much bigger label for distribution this side of the world. Um, uh, the album is called Voices. Voices. That's the one. Yeah. Uh, the, very um, distinctive also, cover. You'll, you'll know when you see it. Well, they also had Dirge that came out in 2011 that was on uh, that was on Earache. Oh, okay. Oh, they're both so, on Earache. Oh, okay. Is so, his on Earache too? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. They're still oh, signed okay. Earache. Yeah. Just, oh, okay. I, I got their history wrong. Uh, yeah, they were just always on Earache. They were always kind of good. I guess I just didn't know them in 2011 or whatever. <coughs> Excuse me. So yeah, they are really, really amazing grindcore bands, like up there with uh, Pig Destroy and Discordance Axis, and like the, um, very, very abrasive. Um, but also they've got a lot of like kind of flashy, kind of distinct riffs. They don't um, flip things up like I don't know, Full of Hell might. Um, they're, they're, even though it's a minute and fifty seconds long, this is still a song. Um, so yeah, this is the first track. Uh, that's been released, and it's even got a video. Just on Eric, they got video money now. Um, so, um, come on, I can't even this song now. I'll delete myself. Uh, <laughs> getting all about it, so I look like I've, I remember things when I really don't. Behind closed doors. That's the one. This is behind closed doors by Wormrot. Uh, the cover of this is a, I think, a painting of a scene from a. Um, was it yeah a Japanese uh, film called Female Prisoner Scorpion? Um, it's like a prison exploitation movie uh, that they made like seven sequels of and progressively worse over time. Uh, friend of the show, um, Sean at uh, currently podcasting at hundred um, not um, live at the Death Factory. His one of his previous podcasts, um, maybe Hundreds of Dead Bodies, uh, did a big deep dive into the um, Female Prisoner Scorpion series, and it sounds fucking insane. Um, also, yeah, Life of the Death Act, one of the greatest podcasts out at the moment. Just brilliant. Um, Sean and Astrid, if you're listening, you guys really rock. Uh, but anyway, also rocking is Worm Rot. Uh, so here's um, Behind Closed Doors. Oh, my God. 
oh, I even overestimated how long this song was. I thought it was a minute 50 seconds. It's a minute 28 seconds. Damn. So, yeah, that was a... You gave it 22 bonus five. seconds. That's like an yeah. extra song. Yeah, or like five extra very short songs. That's true. I've heard shorter songs from grindcore bands. That's for goddamn sure. They, they just love some short songs. I don't know what it is. Um, there should be just other... Um, genres that do incredibly short songs like what will like a, a, a three second rap song sound like right or uh like two seconds of um neoclassical there should be so, like a grind like a pop. pop band where it's like yeah. you know big hooky melodies but only for like 11 seconds that would be so good um and, and it'd be perfect for tiktok right yeah i'm gonna make that um I actually need lots of money and access to, um, like, children to be in right. my band. I was like, I yeah. need to get a, I need to get teens who can use TikTok without being put on a list. Mm, yeah, but then also being in that situation, I would get put on a list very quickly. Not for anything I do. It's just, it, it's just a very sus situation. I, I'd be the perfect gentleman. Yeah, it'd be like but, pe people got to keep their eyes on, you know, whoever whoever would do that. N not not that you think they're going to do something, but like, gotta be sure. The implication. Yeah, so, absolutely. The implication. Um, anyway, I, I want to talk about eternal recurrence because I'm still trying to get down what the, the, the bigger picture of the version, the, the non like self-help. Yeah. So uh, obviously there is there is there is obviously the, the existential version, which is the one you're hinting at. Um, and that's sort of that's the one that's used to ease people into the topic. Um, and in a lot of ways, to be fair, that's the most day-to-day -day usable version if if you rate and think about philosophers by what of these concepts help me make sense of the world or help me parse elements of real life um that's going to be the one that you go to uh obviously the thought is a little bit more complicated than that um uh one of one of the best ways that i found to describe it is with a good friend of the show um borge um uh yeah Despite being a uh, an anti-communist in life, um, Borges' politics were very bad. Don't look those up if you can avoid it. He he was kind of a dipshit in everything except for literature. Um, Story of our times, isn't it? Yeah, I, I never read thought about his politics. I always just seemed to be like a South American communist, and because he's a great artist, I just assumed he'd have my politics because they're objectively perfect. Right? Uh, no, but, he yeah, he actually he wrote. He wrote a whole story about like the a hypothetical good Nazi. Now, granted, he did vocally hate oh. Nazis. He he just was like he felt that like oh it would be interesting to do a thought experiment like what would be a good Nazi and can I, and which is it's weird to do. Like again, he didn't he didn't like Nazis and he um he hated anti semites and things like that. Um, which obviously, if you hate anti semites, you can't normally like Nazis on account of. You know the Holocaust. That was a pretty. That was a pretty bad, pretty yeah, pretty bad a, scene. A line in the sand that you kind of would be on one side of there. Yeah, kind of, it's kind of your your opinions on that should should be pretty self self evident. Um, because mm. it was bad. It was it was bad. It was cl uh, classic bad. Um, but uh, so he's a story called um, God. Now I'm forgetting. I I riffed too long. Now I've forgotten the name of the story. Um. Author of the Quixote. Uh, let me 
Uh, da, da, da. Author of Don Quixote? Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote. There we go. Okay. So he has a short story called Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote. And it's about a, a young South American writer named Pierre Menard from the mid 20th century. Um, and it's written uh, from the perspective of an unnamed literary critic who's also friends with this guy. And he's talking about how Pierre Menard is the greatest living author. And he proved it by writing a book that was character by character. So not even word by word, but like every letter and every space and every piece of punctuation was in exactly the same place as Don Quixote in the original um, Castilian Spanish that it would have been written in by, um, uh, by Cervantes. And he did this despite never having read Don Quixote ever. So he didn't transcribe it. He wrote a new book that was exactly identical to Don Quixote and written in exactly the same language. And it's in the short story, he comments that it wasn't inventive for Cervantes to write in the language that he did because it was just the language of Cervantes. It was just what was spoken around him, what was written around him. Um, meanwhile, Pierre Menard had to conceive of how someone from the 14th century would have written and would have spoken and happened to create something identical to what did actually happen. It, strange kind of story to think about, but it's the idea of like, uh, what this gets at with something like the eternal recurrence is this becomes genius because Don Quixote has recurred as in literally happened a second time and not happened a second time because it was copied. It legitimately emerged a second time in history, exactly the same, no differences at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that this is the first time it comes is interesting. Um, obviously that's an understatement when it comes to Don Quixote. It's widely considered one of the best books ever written in world literature for good reason. Um, but it only gains more power in recurring that something like this would happen a second time um, is a testament to this abstract object. Uh, okay. This is sort of the non-existential version because it's not about you recurring. It's about structures or, or things recurring. Mm -hmm. okay. the, the power of it, obviously, is that for someone who is a poor child who lives in South America, has never been to Spain, doesn't speak that kind of Spanish, doesn't know the way that they lived, doesn't know the technology they had available, doesn't know the kinds of social tensions, to have conceived of and written something that would so perfectly emulate that era is a greater feat of imagination. Because yeah. Cervantes wasn't inventing nearly as much. Because Presumably this kid also hasn't read Orlando or any of the other romances that are referenced in Don Quixote that he would have had to write about if he made a perfect copy. Um, this is sort of one instance of, say, Borges meditating on something like the eternal recurrence. Another one, another way to think of it uh, is conceptual recurrence is something that did not exist in the past, but once it comes into being, has always existed. A way to elaborate on that is if you were to if I were to ask you um, which one of Mozart's pieces is the jazziest, you could answer. Oh, yeah. You you wouldn't you wouldn't know off the top of your head, but if you were to go back and listen, you'd be like, maybe it's this one. 
Meanwhile, if I go back and ask Mozart, what would you say is your jazziest? His response would be, what the fuck is a jazz? Mm. He'd have a lot of questions about time travel and obviously who who am I? Um, But Mm. he wouldn't be able to parse the question because the terms in which it's understood haven't come into being yet. But once jazz erupts, not just as a thing that exists, but as something within consciousness. So that's sort of an important differentiation that it's not that jazz, it's not that someone has played jazz before. It's that jazz has reached a certain level of saturation that everyone in the world kind of knows what it is as an object cast or like as a classification. And once that happens, these classifications in a kind of platonic sense bounce outside of time. They don't, it's not that you can only evaluate things for jazziness from the moment jazz exists forward. It can also reach backward and you can start retroactively classifying things that you couldn't before. The same thing actually happened with heavy metal where once the term had been thrown around, but once we got heavy metal as an eruptive thing, it was a lot easier to point backwards and go this, 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 and this led yeah. to heavy metal. We would not have gotten heavy metal. New for these. Cult and so on. Yeah. yeah. And so in a certain way, these are heavy metal. Yes. Black Sabbath may have been the moment that everyone in the world went, this is a thing that's separate from rock and roll. Ironically, not black Sabbath themselves. They thought of themselves as a rock and roll band, but, um, yeah. but we, we can look back and you can look back even very, very far. You can look at things like, um, Wagner, as we mentioned before, is having a lot of... And so that's a notion of what recurrence is on like a philosophical end to Nietzsche. It's not just... It's not just a thing of personal becoming. It's not a thing about like seizing the day for yourself. It's about... And this is sort of the call of the Ubermensch is the Ubermensch is that which recurs. That's the defining trait of the Ubermensch is that the Ubermensch recurs perfectly or alternatively creates something that recurs okay so like the creation of jazz as a thing is mm-hmm. one of those great moments that nietzsche would class that as like a great moment um yeah. or um obviously the creation of heavy metal to us is that's going to be very that, that's a bit too obvious um <laughs> but that's sort of in his mind what what the Ubermensch is. This is where a lot of um, like 20th century uh, thinkers when writing, or Marxist thinkers when writing about Nietzsche mentioned that like Marx fills this, uh, fulfills this notion because quite literally we don't, you have to tell someone about non-Marxist socialism for them to even yeah. know that's He's a like thing. erased um, all the people before him. And he, he, like even further back, you can go back to, like early Hindu stuff or um, like the um, uh, the apostles of, um, of early Christianity and say there was like proto-socialism there when they were uh, sharing their property in, around. And that's so where yeah. one, okay. one of the reads cool. of say like the will to power. So that's what the will to power is, is nothing will stop me from achieving this thing that will now break into consciousness and become not just an object, not just a person, but a very way that we perceive and experience and interact with the world. It will become so fundamental to reality that it will, it will appear as though it's recurring, even though it has in fact only happened once because it is so 
super saturated all mm. of time. Um, wow. The, no, yeah, I have like I haven't yeah thought about the eternal occurrences anything more than just the you know the pop Nietzsche existential yeah. version. But that is a uh, that is very cool. I like, and so I like that, a lot. that sort of leads to why Nietzsche is hard to classify politically because he isn't. He very clearly isn't apolitical, but mm. he's almost more anti-political in that this notion of the will to power is satisfied by any number of radically different thinkers and radically different political systems and radically different events of history. Like, it's a general cast that one... Like, one can look at, say, um, the, the October Revolution and the Holocaust as roughly equivalent in this mode, even though they are in every other way radically different. Because it's this, there's something about de profundus with him, of like this profound thing that cannot be classified in any potential way. That for him ruptures this Hegelian sense of dialectic, like the way that history is supposed to go and the way that the order of things is supposed to go is broken. That's also sort of the context that he means by the Ubermensch, is that he he's... It's very clear that he's afraid in all of his work that maybe Hegel is right. Maybe there is a dialectical superstructure that sort of governs how the world and all its relations work. And the image of the Ubermensch to him is the only person who, through pure will to power, is able to break all of that. That there's no relation whatsoever that they like they overturn the repeating cycles of history to impose their own new repeating cycle onto the shape of history. Yeah, what um, one of the many people I was listening to talk about Nietzsche thoughts about his like fear that um, basically liberal democracy would just win and just keep going, and kind of um, I think Zizek talks about this as well as capitalism is this vampire that just keeps uh, through no matter how many crises, no matter how many times we put a stake through its heart, it just keeps going um yeah and we we get the same kind of sense in marx where marx isn't shy about the fact that and this is one of the most like widely misread elements in marx that it's not like you overthrow capitalism with communism and then you immediately have perfect stateless society people often misread the withering of of the state apparatus towards that that there's instead the sort of undefined period where, and this is also where a lot of contemporary Marxist thinkers go, is that there will be struggles after communism. And there very well may be a system that's needed to overthrow communism that will then be better in that context than communism is. But that Marx was writing very specifically about, I'm watching industrial capitalism, and communism is the thing that overthrows this. But that it's it's in many ways still about that that nature of cyclical overturning. That you know what you're pointed towards. You know you know where all of this is supposed to go, but you can't you can't go from step two to step one thousand. You have to go from step two to step three, and then from three to four, and then four to five, and all that kind of stuff. So, Eric, oh, yeah, oh, I know. I, I, it's like, did you die? 
Nietzsche was just too powerful that um, that I was destroyed by his thunderbolts of pure wisdom from the mountaintops. Um, <clears throat> no, I wanted to kind of bring that back to the book and think about how, yeah, how we can make Nietzschean Marxism. What what would that look like? What would it? How would how would we do this different? Because these two thinkers who are both really uh, emphasize praxis as that's what you do. And, you know, the obvious Marx quotes, like, the point isn't to interpret the world, but to change it. Like, what, just going off uh, Saker's book, what, what's a Nietzschean Marxism going to look like? How is it different from what we have right now? Well, it's one that, and this is, this is something that I've actually come up a lot in let's say we see the perennial uh, never-ending conflicts about, say, YA Twitter, or is Disney woke or literally the worst? No in-between, no other information, like all those kinds of tedious, never-ending repeating conflicts. Um, the, the response, the best response to those isn't to invest in either side, because as much as when you invest in, no, this thing sucks, you still become equally as ensnared by it as when you are blind to it. You still, it, it's, it's the trick of capitalist realism. I mean, this is, this is a large part of what Mark Fisher was talking about, is that a lay anti-capitalism that doesn't build anything in replacement is still trapped in this endless cycle with capitalism. It doesn't see anything beyond it. And in a lot of ways, that's what, uh, to Senka's point, that's a trap that Marxist thinkers can fall into, that they they start thinking of orthodox Marxism is the point, instead of the point is to make something in the world and make it in response to the world that's directly in front of you. So that's sort of, that's the kind of system breaking that I think one would need to inherit or port in from Nietzsche that's also still native within Marx, that Marxism as we know it, the whole body of Marxism-Leninism is a much better science than many of the competing things around it. But you can never, ever tell yourself it's complete, and you can never, ever let it be chains or let it be a way to enslave your thought. That this built up in reaction to real historical events and real historical relations, but our task is always to think about our historical relations. Like, draw as much inspiration as you want, but at a certain point, like, Marx didn't foresee the digital future. So we don't have stuff within the body of very traditional Marxist literature on how to deal with the digital front of all of this stuff. We're going to have to learn how to make something else. And that means on a certain level, um, trusting to a kind of wildness and ferocity that may be to certain much more orthodox Marxist thinkers a bit scary. This also sort of runs counter to he's, I don't think a Nietzschean Marxist in this sense would then be an anti-Marxist. Like they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't play into the like our tankies real game, which is the dumbest and most useless yeah. anti-communist mode of thought in the world. Like that's not a question that matters. Like, yeah, there are dipshits who think communist things, but the whole notion of tankies isn't useful in any way. All does is discourage you from reading Marxist thought. Hmm. Like, read it and don't be a dipshit. It's very easy. Like, you don't, we don't need to complicate it with these weird things. 
In fact, I I would I would largely assume that a Nietzschean Marxist would disregard terms like like tanky. That it's like no, there are there are useful and non-useful formulations in Marxist thought. There are ways that you can uh, approach it that are at best like vain and at worst destructive. But this isn't this doesn't condemn Marxism. The same way that like Nietzsche having a couple real bad quotes that do suck ass doesn't mean that there's nothing useful there. You just go, all right, I'm going to lop the dead limb off and keep going. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, pretty much the rule of life is just ignore everything happening on the internet. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I've, I've, I've come full circle on the idea of is the internet real? It, it, I no longer believe it's real. I'm, I'm, it's there's no relevance to it. I don't need the internet or any of the people on it. I um, strongly agree. Most of, uh, yeah, uh, it seems like anyone of worth will at some point emerge out of the internet and go into yeah. the sun. And I no longer want to encourage people to go outside. In fact, if you're listening to this, don't go outside. Don't go outside. Because I want outside to be for people who, in a Nietzschean sense, have self-overcome and deserve to be outside. I want to be outside with them. I don't want to be outside with the other people. I see dipshit arguments on, and like dumb fucking jo A lady lost a book nomination on uh, because of uh, getting into a big ass fight on the internet. I don't want to meet her outside. I don't want that yeah. energy in my real life. She doesn't deserve to touch grass. Grass is lovely. No right? One you should earn grass. No, don't touch grass, earn grass, become worthy of grass. Close your mindset. Always be closing. It's the trillionaire way. It's Mindset Monday. Oh, yeah. On a Tuesday or whenever this comes out. Just like Toxic Tuesday, Mindset Monday is about your mindset. If your mindset is that it's not Monday, so you can't do Mindset Monday, you don't deserve it. Yeah. The Monday part is a test. You We're system breakers here, bitch. Yeah. You think the week is uh you know a valid system? I don't care. Even though it is named after like demonic gods and that's pretty like Nietzschean. That's well, probably not actually. He probably thinks that's very stupid. He, he actually he probably thinks that's associated with Wagner and therefore is very stupid. So yeah, the week is stupid now. Nietzsche would hate yeah, he, the week. He would have liked Dionysus Day. Oh yeah, he'd like that. Yeah. But then that would just be the only day he'd really like. And Zarathustra Day, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> Zarathustra Day. Perfect. Yeah, we now got two days for an, a Nietzschean week. Um. But yeah, it's so, <clears throat> so coming back to the book. I mean, um, I don't want to do like a review review, but um, it's a it's a good book. I enjoyed yeah. reading it. I learned from it. It's it... easily it's easy to read. Um, it's far easier. Uh, introduction to both these thinkers than you'd get by reading, say, The Lose. Uh, uh, Notoriously yeah. hard guy to approach. <laughs> yeah. Easier than The Lose. That should be on the cover. Yeah, it's like a lot of like a lot of good nonfiction books, and this is something that I like quite a lot about this book. Um, is that it's it's not about. Actually, this ties back to, to what we were mentioning about Nietzsche. Um, a lot of people have. In fact, 
<laughs> I can I can tie this even further back. One of the big critiques that Nietzsche would have of the way that a lot of people approach nonfiction in general is the thought that in order to like something, you have to like every bit of it from the first letter to the last letter. And if there's a single moment of discontinuity, you either have to convince yourself that discontinuity is actually good or throw everything out. And especially in the world of ideas, that's simply not how things go. And for people who read a lot of nonfiction, that's not the point of nonfiction. The point of especially theory text, it isn't about I agree with and co-sign every single word here. It's you have to think of it more like a conversation. You're talking with someone. The only difference is they can't hear you, but you're talking in your head to the thoughts that are present here. And you're just chewing them over seeing which ones fit, seeing which ones make sense. Does this explain things that I've witnessed in the world or that I've thought about? Do they not? All that kind of stuff. In that mode, this book was very satisfying. It, it, it's written in an incredibly approachable way. It doesn't feel dumbed down either. Like he has enough pull quotes oh, yeah. that are really meaty, but he isn't, he doesn't hit you over the head with really dense jargon. That's That's kind of what I'm getting at here is that like, there are people who write about this stuff with jargon and there's a kind of space if you get deep enough into this stuff that you want that because it's a way to it's a way to capture like two pages of idea and like two words but he's a lot more comfortable and conversant in it you can tell that he's actually read a lot of this shit oh yeah he he is like you know we look down on youtubers but he is a very well-read person he he does annual like uh the best books i've read this year and it's like 20 books that are really, really great stuff. It's, um, it, it's worth noting that like Vosh, Vosh, however you pronounce it, he can't read. Not not one oh, yeah. bit. That, everything that I've been forced to learn about that guy, and I work my hardest not to learn anything about him when whenever possible, he is a dipshit who can't read at all. If you oh, didn't yeah. tell me this guy was written, the, the, the guy who wrote the book that we're talking about was a YouTuber, I wouldn't guess it because he can mm. clearly read. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can say he's one of the good ones. Um, Even his and... awareness of going like, here's parts of this that aren't that aren't new to my book. They may be new to you, and I'm glad that I can introduce them to you, but I'm not going to pretend that I'm creating something brand new. I'm like, damn, that is that is aware of aware as fuck of the field that you're entering into. Would never have guessed that from a YouTuber. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he, he's just getting to podcasting. It's a man's game. It's... He should. Grow the fuck up. Jonas, uh, if you're listening to this, I, I'm, I've got a semi-working um, Yeti mic. Uh, maybe it'll work on your computer. It's clearly not working on mine. Uh, so you can become a podcaster and do some, do, do, get, in the, get in the game. Get you know, up your game and get in the game. And um, just do the real work. Um, this is where Praxis happens on Spotify. And um, yeah, this is where ne- where both Nietzsche and Marx would want you to be right now. This is this is where self overcoming happens. It's in uh, the Spotify um, algorithm and on iTunes. And um, if you are listening on iTunes, uh, give us a five star review. Um, both Marx and Nietzsche would would love you to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, this is a very good book, very readable, very smart, and his YouTube videos are good as well. So, 
yeah, thumbs up to that guy. Um, we're gonna end with some music by Holy Holy Thorn uh, from uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, these guys came out with an album called Death Spells in uh, I think that was a de debut. Yeah, that was a debut in uh, in 2018. Um, it's kind of blew up pretty quickly. Uh, if you're into post metal, uh, black gaze, uh, then you'll be in very much into this. It's um, it's I mean it's honestly it's what I would like Death Heaven to sound like at the moment. But they they, they are on tour with Death Heaven right now. In fact, oh god, um, don't tell <laughs> Death Heaven I said that. Um, <laughs> Just if if you wanted a better snapshot of what they sound like, the fact that Gareth would say, I want them to sound like Death Heaven and Death Heaven agrees enough to have taken them out on tour. Yeah, that's a good snapshot. But that is, that is not a good move to bring a band on tour that are like re kind of replacing them for me. Like, I, I still love those first four Death Heaven albums, but yeah, the new one's just very bad and Holy Fawn. Doing the same moves, um, just so much better. I, I like the new Death Heaven record, but so you, we do you like, do you yeah, yeah. No. I mean, I mean, we can disagree because uh, we're not the dipshits of the internet. With them, True. I'd tell them True. to, uh, I'd tell them to off themselves. Yeah, might I do something to them in in Minecraft or Call of Duty or real um, life? Yeah. Oh yeah, we're, we're podcasts. We can say like "kill yourself" if you have different opinions to me, right? I mean, um, that's that's the whole. That's the beauty. No one, no one listens to us. Every act of terrorism was committed by me. Yeah, I'm just really racist. <laughs> Horribly racist. Just me, me and Varg or or a compound come up with new races to be racist against. We've got. We're trying out new slurs that are just like <laughs> slurs so advanced they blow your mind. Yeah, they're, they're, I came up with a slur the other day for a, a very small part of Belgium uh, that was just so offensive that the walls just bled shit. It was like I gave the walls of the room I was in on Varg's compound diarrhea just by how much um, hate and malice I put into this slur I invented for this very tiny part of Belgium. It's barely a square mile but everyone from there if i said this to them they would you know their eyes would bleed that's the level i'm on but um holy fawn pretty good band too they um yeah death spells was a great album and they come their new one is coming soon uh they've got a first song off it is called death is a relief which is would be true of most people i talk to on the internet um yeah, it's uh, got a lot more electronic elements to it. The black metal is turned down a little, is quite a bit, but uh, towards the end of the song, you still got the kind of screamy vocals in there as well. Um, kind of reminds me of uh, Alcest or Alce or however you pronounce it, more than it does um, Death Heaven or Mogwai or kind of anything that their um, their first record kind of evoked. Uh, yeah, still really amazing band to should be many people should be checking out so we're going to play those in a second uh we'll be back very shortly uh with a um 
something uh, an episode about kind of some stuff we talked about here especially eternal recurrence we're going to talk about the um souls the the oeuvre of uh, hidetaka miyazaki so the souls games and elden ring and bloodborne um all that stuff it's, it's anything be... more eternal recurrence than poison swamps uh, yeah well the yeah the um the whole cosmology of the souls and elden ring games is uh, basically exactly what you said about the eternal recurrence and uh, and about capitalist realism and it there's way more politics and philosophy in the souls games than people give the um credit for there are exactly the same number of squid though yes that one's accurately grasped yeah uh, I, I think the they're more a crab game than a squid game yeah, the squids uh, no. were really only in Bloodborne. That was sort of the big, yeah. the big addition but, to the oeuvre there was um, yeah. all the crustaceans were wetter. Hmm. Yeah, there's some there's some squids in Elden Ring, uh, these big like balls of tentacles. But there was way more crabs. It's much more crab based game. Um, yeah, um, and if you're wondering where the episode was last week, uh, fuck you. I was playing Elden Ring. I enjoy doing that more than I do uh, entertaining and edifying anyone. Yeah, I was playing Horizon. I had to. I I'm autistic, and I had dinosaurs in there. I was not going to be recording a podcast. Yeah, you won't be going to be playing like, like, why play Horizon Zero Dawn when Elden Ring came out on the same day? It's insane. Look, right? I'm I'm scared of playing that. All right, here's my hot reveal. This is the, this is the prequel to the Souls episodes. I've only ever played one. I'm so bad at them. Ornstein and Smo beat my ass so hard that I got fighting game salty and uninstalled the game for my uh, PS4. And I never looked back. I should have. I know I'm wrong to do that. They're the best. They're the best Metroidvania game franchise that's emerged. uh, Technically only because Hollow Knight only has the one game. But like they're the only other one that could feasibly stand in that same window because they're doing the same thing except in a 3d space and they're fucking great and i just i can't i just can't do them well that's because you need to get good that's right You're just a filthy casual and you need to get good not wrong um yeah uh, so yeah we're going to be um tormenting Landon about how he's a filthy casual he needs to get good he needs to level uh an adp um uh, utterly bitch made yeah, just completely. Like, like Sekiro would ruin you. You would be dribbling on the floor if you played even a second of Sekiro. Shadows die twice. Yeah, just absolute uh, untermensch. Um, so, yeah, we'll be back with one of those. Um, I, there's a really great book called uh, The Deloriad by Missouri Williams. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, we're going to also be talking about uh, the book that uh, John Darnell t- told us about, which is also a post-apocalyptic uh, literary fiction like the Deloriad. Maybe we'll even talk about both of them at the same time, put them to get together. That'll be that'll be some brain genius, four hundred IQ shit. We're going to um, be blowing our own brains and assholes out. I'm going to sharp myself live on air because of how genius we're going to be. Yeah. Help. Yeah. I don't think, figure we could we could top that. It's the idea of um, Langdon prolapsing to death on podcasts because of how smart our brains are going to be when we read two books at the same time. <laughs> um, 
yeah, we're going to have just the, the most amazing thoughts about that. But uh, here's Holy Fawn. Here is uh, Death Will Be a Relief. Death is a Relief. Uh, come back next week. Follow us on Patreon. Here's Holy Fawn. <laughs>